This is the epic conclusion of this special Hacker Valley Red mini season where we are dissecting the CrowdStrike Global Threat Report of 2022 with the great help of Adam Myers, head of intelligence at CrowdStrike. In this final episode, we conclude by taking flight. That's right, we are putting our heads in the clouds. We discuss threats to cloud infrastructure, how to close those gaps, and we also relive that Log4j experience. Let's get right to it. Welcome to Hacker Valley Red, where we are exploring the nexus of cybersecurity offense and humanity with a hacker's mindset. Again, I'm one of your hosts, Chris Cochran. And I'm your other host, Ron Eddings. And this is the final episode of this mini season where we're exploring the CrowdStrike 2022 Global Threat Report. And to wrap all of this up, we've brought back in Adam Myers, CrowdStrike's very own head of intelligence. And this episode, we're going to be focusing on threats to the cloud. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Adam, this is such a repeat topic in every CISO roundtable, every fireside chat, every back office conversation that I've been a part of. Folks are just so hesitant about the cloud because it's almost like a necessary evil at this point. If you're trying to expand operations, if you're trying to build efficiencies, cloud is a great technology that you could use to improve your company. But with the adoption of cloud comes the expansion of attack surface. So from a cloud perspective, what are you seeing today? So, you know, I think on the cloud side, there's there's a couple of things that are important for organizations to think about. You know, there's definitely a lot of misconfiguration issues that you know, either because they, they don't know the technology very well or they're they're trying to do something to enable them to, you know, I don't know, conduct some, you know, some business purpose. But uh, in, in the end, what that misconfiguration introduces is the ability for a threat actor to get access to their data or to some of their systems. So, you know, in that, that case, the technology that we've seen has been pretty impactful is cloud security posture management, which is really, you know, kind of the cloud equivalent of vulnerability management, making sure that things are properly configured, that they haven't set inappropriate permissions, for example, on, on buckets or containers of some sort. We've also seen that organizations have, you know, that, they, that they're not protecting their cloud workloads in the same way that they would protect their traditional server desktop or, or laptops so cloud workload protection is another area that is you know kind of critical for making sure that you have that visibility so take us back a little bit when i was early in my cybersecurity career there was this thing called crowdstrike and crowdstrike was one of the first like really cloud-based security solutions that i've seen did you did you anticipate it taking this long for everyone else to jump on cloud adoption, whether they're public or private sector organizations. What are your thoughts there on just how long it's taken to get to this point of cloud adoption? Yeah, I mean, people were originally pretty terrified of the cloud. And I mean, early meetings at CrowdStrike, I can remember there were organizations that said, not a chance. We're never going cloud. We'll never be there. And our, our CEO, George, you know, I, I remember one story where it was a financial institution was like, we're never 
going to be uh, doing that. And, and I think it was like virtualization or something like that years ago. And he said, remember when I came here and they, they said that you guys said you weren't going to do this. And, and they said, yeah, they said, how's that going? And they said, Oh yeah, we're using it all the time now. And he was like, all right, I'll see you in a few years. And you know, <laughs> we, we would go back and, and now they've kind of figured out that, you know, having all of this stuff on prem doesn't scale. All right. Uh, particularly with things like EDR. And when, you know, the pandemic hit and people were working from home, they're working from Starbucks, they're working from home computers that aren't even corporate systems, that attack surface became much, much bigger. And yep. as they start looking at how can they protect that, you know, we had organizations that were rolling out our endpoint protection to devices, you know, that were, were home systems and things like that in order to make sure that they had the visibility to protect those systems. So I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is that the concept of cloud-delivered endpoint protection and, and monitoring and detection has really become kind of the thing that most organizations are moving towards, right? Uh, they're moving away from from legacy antivirus products that rely on signatures because what we right. can do with cloud technology in terms of automated uh, workflows, we've, we've got this uh, this uh, Falcon flow thing that, that lets you do that. We have the ability to do anomaly detection and machine learning at scale across the entire environment. We've got um, lots of capabilities that just aren't possible with, you know, on device you know, signature-based AV, legacy AV products, and certainly even in the next-gen kind of new technology space with things like EDR and endpoint protection, that you can't do this on on-prem either. The scalability and running the servers and all of that stuff is just a, a nightmare. So, so let's talk about that for a second. We we talk about digital transformation, and you mentioned people moving to rem remote work, whether you're talking about because of the pandemic or anything like that, or even just the, the growth of a company. Have you seen a lot of specific targeting looking for those remote workers trying to affect them in order to get access to the main company? You know, I, I think we have. You know, we've certainly seen campaigns that were, you know, and I, I think it's hard to say specifically that they were looking for remote workers over other employees or, or, or other systems. Because, you know, when you look at these campaigns, particularly with COVID, it was a lot of phishing emails and things. So they didn't really care where you were located. But the, the reality was for the enterprises trying to protect those systems and to monitor, if somebody was working remotely, that they couldn't see when something was happening. And that was the biggest impact. And, and ransomware actors feasted on that uh, for, for a long period of time right after the pandemic hit. It seems like credentials are all over the place, especially since we've shifted and you know adopted the cloud more. You'll see credentials if you open a, a Chrome extension sometimes. Sometimes you'll see credentials if you're inspecting API information. And sometimes you'll just get credentials if you've compromised someone's email. You could still find that a lot of people are sharing credentials in unsafe ways or using their credentials in unsafe ways. How have you seen the threat, whether it's APT, crime groups, how have you seen the, the threats begin to use credentials that have been discovered, whether they're compromised or just exposed in other misconfigurations? Yeah, I mean, password spraying, password stuffing, you know, uh, or credential stuffing, th these things have been around for a while. And I think, you know, the way that I think about this particular challenge isn't so much about credentials as much as identity. 
And identity is something that a lot of organizations have embraced in the last year. And when we look at some of the ransomware incidents that we've investigated and looked at, the outcome for organizations that had invested in identity protection and things like zero trust, those organizations had markedly better outcomes when they were facing the same challenges as organizations that didn't have that. Because especially, you know, if you, if you look at this latest global threat report, 82% increase in data extortion, right, where they're stealing data and using it against the victim. And, and we've talked about this uh, before, but, you know, that 82% increase is 82% of these, uh, these incidents that went after data. And with the right identity management and the right zero trust implementation, that becomes much more difficult to pull off. And it, it's very alerting to the targeted entity when they, they observe that. So, you know, that's been, a, I think, the biggest differentiator in the last year is that organizations that take identity seriously and have implemented zero trust or identity-based solutions have much better outcomes. I did a big study. It had to have been 2020 at this time, and I would say early 2020. And I was doing tax within the cloud. And to be honest with you, there wasn't a lot there. It was more of people leveraging misconfigurations like we were talking about before. But is that changing now? Are we seeing more successful operations just from an exploitation standpoint in the cloud? You know, I don't know that a lot's changed, right? I mean, when we look about the threats to cloud environments, you have cloud vulnerability exploitation. So there's some vulnerability in the cloud that could be at the control plane, um, that could be at a individual uh, system. It could be within uh, a whole network of systems, right? Log4j, I think, impacted a lot of those types of complex environments. Credential theft is another one. We have seen, you know, many organizations that have uploaded code to a code repository, for example, that had credentials baked into the code. And then they quickly went and committed over it to, to erase that mistake without realizing that that commit was still in the record. So somebody can go through and mine those commits looking for credentials, and, and they do that all the time. Abuse of cloud services is another thing where, where you're kind of taking advantage of what that cloud is offering. Um, think of, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that that happens. And then, um, the, again, exploitation of misconfigured things. And then, uh, you know, there's a supply chain component, too, if you, if you lump containerization into this, right? A lot of organizations have kind of leveraged cloud infrastructure to support container environments. And so there's a lot of containers out there that people are just implementing without taking a hard look at what's on them. And so, you know, in most cases, you know, the threat there is coin miners for the most part, but... It is something that um, needs to be thought about and, and I think tracked pretty uh, pretty carefully when you're going to be implementing some of these various containers because there, there there is some risk that you're onboarding. So when we look at the cloud and when we speak about vulnerabilities, exploits, we can't go too far, at least today, without going deep into the weeds and understanding Log4j and the impact that that had on cybersecurity, but really the world as a whole. Walk us through this story of Log4j. I would love to hear from the eyes of an expert, you know, more about what it is, how it happened, and where we ended up after it was all, you know, after everything was really set on fire. Yeah, definitely. So Log4j is an open source Java logging framework, and it's part of the Apache kind of family of things, and it's used in lots of other Apache projects, things like Struts, Solar, Druid, 
Flink, et cetera. Lots of third-party packages use Log4j. In fact, CISA through the JCDC, which is um, one of their uh, public-private partner type groups, identified, uh, I forget the number, it was over 2,500 products that leveraged Log4j. And in late November, a researcher at Alibaba identified a remote code exploit for Log4j. They reported it to Apache, and within a few days, Apache issued a patch, uh, which was a release candidate patch. It wasn't kind of fully baked, but they released it. That didn't get it done. So on the 5th of December, they released a second patch. And on the 9th of December, which was a Thursday, and I I vividly remember standing in in the airport. I was in New York at an airport. I had just had dinner and my phone starts blowing up. And now I'm kind of getting my team to start coordinating writing Intel reporting for our customers about this this new vulnerability that's kind of been weaponized. And what happened, what was significant on the 9th of December, was that somebody released proof of concept code to the internet. And mm-hmm. the, the, the manner in which you exploit Log4j, and I won't go too technical here because I need a whiteboard and uh, I, I'll go super <laughs> nerdy on y'all. Um, but uh, effectively, it was taking... It was serializing an object in Java, meaning that, that you know it's an object-oriented programming language and, and within the object there's data. And in order to send the, the object between systems or processes, it serializes it. And then on the other side, it deserializes it. And the big problem with Log4j is when it was deserializing that data object um, or the object, it, it wasn't treating some of the fields as untrusted. It kind of treated them as trusted. And so the vulnerability allowed you know, an attacker to basically control the flow of execution and, and then pull down or, or tell this, this process to pull down a class file and to execute it. So this became the remote code execution. And what this meant was any system running log4j was very easy to arbitrarily get it to load a class file, uh, which could be a remote uh, access toolkit. It could be a- any number of things, a web shell even. And that became public on the 9th of December. And it was immediately picked up by script kitties and, and coin miners. In fact, you know, I worked all through the night pretty much because we were, we were trying to assess what the impact of this was. And, you know, it was pretty endemic. And, and this gets to the supply chain issue as well. A lot of organizations didn't even know that they had Log4j. So imagine a CISO on the 10th of December, now Friday, waking up uh, and, and realizing that they have to try to figure out every place that they're using this, you know, Apache logging framework inside of their environment. And, you know, it, it was so bad that kids were talking about the vulnerability on Minecraft and just wow. talking about the vulnerability triggered the vulnerability. What? Yeah. So like, hey, did you hear about this new vulnerability? Here's what it looks like. Triggered the vulnerability. Um, and so... You know, it was trivial to exploit. And, I, you know, I remember waking up, uh, not really waking up, but I was, I was working and uh, my, my uh, kindergartner came down and was like, Dad, what's going on with Minecraft? I don't know how he heard about it, but I was like, oh, boy, what do you know about object serialization? And uh, <laughs> they're not teaching kindergartners about this stuff, which is, you know, I think a, a problem with the uh, the education system here in America. But, um, yeah, you know, then you have organizations that had thousands of systems, tens of thousands of systems that had to be patched because they were leveraging, you know, all of this for big data and for, for, for things of that nature. 
And then it turned out that the patch didn't work. Um, so everybody that had patched on the 9th and the 10th on the 13th got a new version, which was Log4j version 2.16, uh, which, you know, the original version was 2.14. The patched version was 2.15.0 RC1. The second one was RC2. And then on the 13th of December, they roll out 2.16. And then that didn't get it done. So five days later, they rolled out 2.17. And then I think 10 days after that, 2.17.1 came out, which I, I believe is the latest version. So that was kind of how this whole thing unfolded. And, and you know, I think we, we actually got very lucky there because the widespread use of it on the 9th of December by, by threat actors deploying coin miners like XM Rig triggered such a massive patch effort and, and everybody kind of went into panic mode about patching that it got patched very, very quickly. And the first threat actor, you know, from a nation state perspective that we saw taking advantage of this was not until a few days later. I think it was around the 13th of December. Um, so just when that um, that 2.16, the third patch came out, we observed a Iranian threat actor we track as Nemesis Kitten staging inside of their infrastructure class files, which uh, we believe they were using to deploy one of their reverse proxies when they uh, when they exploited Log4j. And then a few days later, we observed another threat actor, Aquatic Panda. So it, you know, in most exploit chains or, or proliferation, it usually starts with the higher end actor and they use it a little bit more discreetly. And then, you know, as it propagates into the kind of uh, broader community gets down into the bottom of the bucket. That's where the, the coin miners and, and, and other kind of lower sophisticated threat actors will start to leverage it. This one went the opposite way. It, right. it started at the bottom of the bucket and then other threat actors work to catch up to it. And, you know, we have, uh, you know, we've seen first it was used by the bottom of the bucket, then Iran, then China, then, you know, uh, towards the getting towards the end of the week, Doppel Spider, one of the ransomware actors that we track, started using it. And then on the 31st of December was the first time we saw an access broker that we track as Profit Spider using it. So as um, it continued to kind of get attention and, and, and more sophisticated threat actors started looking at it, we saw them using it and using it in maybe slightly different ways than it had initially been used because some of those initial patches we're being bypassed with things like gadgets, uh, Java gadgets that basically let you kind of use the vulnerability in a, in a way that it wasn't initially being used. And so as the more sophisticated actors kind of caught up, it became a, a little bit more of a sophisticated problem at that point. So I used to hear this old threat intelligence urban legend that there was some CEO somewhere and, and they were saying like, hey, there, there's someone on our network and they're doing crypto mining. But the crypto miners were helping update the servers and they were like, just leave them on there because they're they're doing us a favor. Is that true? Did you hear about that? I haven't heard about that. I would I would expect that you wouldn't want to be, you know, in cloud environments, you're paying for that that compute. Right. So. Yep. I don't know that a CISO would keep their job and say leave a threat actor basically just, you know, draining, uh, draining our compute and, and using it. But, you know, one of the things that I, I had heard during Log4j was somebody say, well, maybe we could use the vulnerability itself to patch the system. You know, that, that was kind of interesting. And, I, you know, there, there have been examples where, you know, different threats have come in and patched the hole that they used to come in. 
And so, you know, so other threat actors couldn't get on. But I, I think that in general, leaving a threat actor in your environment would be kind of like leaving termites in your house. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they say that you should leave spiders alone, right? Because they take care of other pests. So I thought it might have been something similar. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Or you could get hairspray and a lighter and take care of them either way. Right. <laughs> Hope there aren't a lot of spider lovers out there. Um <laughs> So when we think about Log4j, where are we at today? Is this something that we're going to be dealing with going forward if people aren't taking care of their stuff? Or is this pretty much handled at this point? Uh, you know, I think there's still probably some exposure with Log4j um, out there today. I think, you know, f- from my perspective, the concern I would have is that lots of threat researchers started thinking, oh, well, let me let me take a look at some of these Java libraries or endemically used and and might have similar types of issues. And so, you know, I I haven't seen too much coming out, but I I imagine from, you know, the last two or three months that there's been a a significant effort by researchers looking for vulnerabilities, and many of them might be doing it for the right reasons, right, and and going through proper disclosure, but others might be using it for for weaponized purposes. And so, you know, that's my... um, my main concern is that, you know, we might see more of these types of vulnerabilities. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked to a few journalists about over the last couple of months, and, you know, even the last year, because we talked about it last March, was that defenders are not an unlimited resource. And the the people that are out there that are defending environments that are running these patches that are are scrambling every time something happens like log4j or solar winds or you know ukraine you start to grind them down and and their their readiness goes down and they're they're burning out and so you know we need to think about that uh, with regard to things like log4j because that is uh you know the, the amount of effort that went into patching that was not insignificant and if you had one of those types of events every month your you know your defensive team is going to be pretty worn down. They're probably going to make some mistakes and they're going to, you know, really be struggling to keep up. When you look at the, the cloud and you hear, you know, some of the topics we were talking about on the last episode, APT, uh, advanced persistent threat and threat actor groups, what is the persistence mechanism with the cloud? Because I'm sure the attack landscape has changed. The tactics have changed a bit, but how do attackers stay inside of these cloud environments for longer if you know these organizations are using more disconnected SaaS applications and and cloud cloud providers that aren't necessarily all in one uh, yeah i mean it totally depends on the cloud environment you know I, I, the, the the cozy bear stuff for example they were leveraging oauth applications to maintain persistence inside of some of these environments um, and to do it discreetly other you know cloud environments you might see threat actors creating shadow accounts or or you know just i think there's there's a lack of visibility today by a lot of organizations that are are kind of implementing cloud and they they don't necessarily have the the complete visibility to even see their threat actors there so the persistence mechanism is not something that needs to be super complex at this point what about when you see you know we're looking talking about persistence and it's changed quite a bit but does this affect supply chain? I would imagine once you break into an organization's cloud environment, you have just that much more of an opportunity to perform a supply chain type of attack. Now that we've shifted to the cloud 
for many organizations, even governments, do you think we're going to see more supply chain type of cyber events? I think, you know, the supply chain attack is far more complex than cloud itself. I, th I think that the supply chain, you know, extends to every piece of software in the environment and it, it gets to observability, right? And, you know, I think going back to Log4J, I think one of the big challenges that CISOs had was even knowing where they use Log4J, right? So how many systems do you have and, and what's your, your level of patch is probably the first question that the CISO is going to be asked on December 10th. And when the answer is, I don't know, I can pretty much guarantee in most executive staff meetings, that's not an acceptable answer. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, how, how much exposure we have or how big of a problem this is. And uh, I don't know how we're going to figure it out because we don't have the level of observability and visibility inside of our own environment to know where we're even using something like Log4J. So those that, I think, was from a supply chain attack perspective, I think having that visibility and knowing about it is is pretty important. I know there's been a lot of discussion around things like SBOM or software bomb, or um, which I think is a basic order of magnitude, I think is what, what that acronym is. But basically understanding if you buy, you know, some system, what are the embedded software in that, right? Like what open source products, what closed source products are all part of that, that kind of system that you're, you're implementing so that you know what's there and that you can you can take appropriate action if there's some vulnerability that's identified that's the basis for really any security operations is really that asset management not just your physical assets but also your assets in the cloud your cloud instances but that's where a lot of companies are really still struggling to get any type of observability or visibility when you think about that context like wh where do you think folks are going wrong when it comes to like really understanding what their environment looks like well, you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, hmm. I, I, I think that there's some disconnect between the security teams and the teams that are implementing things, which can lead to that. In other words, you know, the security teams responsible for deploying EDR and MFA and, and things along those lines, but they're not necessarily as linked up with the application team or the developer environments. And so that probably leads to the, the first disconnect and the, the the first uh gap in visibility and then you know there's also technical visibility right having the right software implemented to get asset and inventory management in place a lot of organizations don't have that or they're leveraging tools that aren't meant for that in order to get that visibility and so they get an incomplete picture you know, we could talk to you all day long, but we have actually come to the very end of this incredible mini season focused on the global threat report. As you, as we conclude uh, this awesome conversation, what is that one thing that you have gleaned from going through the process of developing the report, going through all of the threats, all the APTs, all of the tactics, techniques, and procedures that you've seen over your entire career, and but really more focused on this past year, what is that one thing that you would want to say to the practitioners out there? Be safe. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think the, the, the one thing that I, I would say that, you know, is kind of always true, and, and we talked about this before, was that Bruce Lee quote of the attacker is like water, right? They, they take the easiest path, the, the path of least resistance, and that if you can make that path harder, for the attacker in your enterprise and your environment, and you can kind of raise uh, your security posture 
incrementally every day, then you're going to make that attacker's job harder. And, you know, there's a better chance that they're going to move on to a softer target. Couldn't have said it better myself, Adam. Again, thank you so much for this incredible mini season. Loved every single conversation we had. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, all the things you're doing at CrowdStrike, and even get their hands on that global threat report, what are the best ways that people can do that? Uh, the CrowdStrike blog will have all kinds of up-to-date information, and uh, we're constantly putting out new reports and, and, and new data on the blog. I'm Adam underscore cyber on Twitter and stay tuned for some teasers for the adversary universe podcast that we're going to be launching in, uh, in not too long. Looking forward to it. Check out Adam, check out the global threat report. We've dropped both in the show notes, Adam. Thank you again. And with that, we'll see everyone next time.